a lot of it is like hesitation. A lot of it is like, oh, it's going to cost me like, you know, $100,000 to sponsor somebody, uh, which I mean, that's not the case. Um, so I think if employers are more educated in this area, um, I think they will be more open to exploring the option of sponsoring foreign nationals. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Despite layoffs in some sectors of the economy, there are still far more job openings in many industries then there are qualified candidates to fill them, leading many employers to look outside of the U.S. for talent. And while many U.S. businesses are turning to international contractors who work remotely, many still prefer to have their team on site. But the limited number of H-1B visas available and the labyrinthine immigration system leave many employers wondering whether the process is worth it. Joining me today to discuss the process of sponsoring an employment-related visa is Dobrina Ustin. Dobrina is a Dallas-based attorney representing employers on matters before the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, Department of Labor, U.S. Embassies, and Consulates. She is also the General Counsel for Immigration and Compliance for RISE IT, a global software and technology services company. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Dobrina. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm an employer and I, and maybe I've got a, sh uh, you know, a, a position, some positions I need to fill and I can't really find in my labor market, uh, the, the talent, what would the argument for me to consider sponsoring foreign nationals for a work visa be, what would those considerations be? Uh, we have usually we have a couple considerations. The first one is obviously talent access to you know talented individuals outside the United States, uh, where you can find uh, individuals with unique skills that perhaps can um, fit into your um, your requirements. Um, that's number one. Number two is um, sometimes, uh, contrary to what people believe, sometimes it's actually cheaper to uh, to bring somebody in than uh, recruit inside the United States. Um, engaging a recruiter and going through all the process sometimes it actually is actually more expensive than finding the person that you really need, the talent that you need, uh, really need, and uh, sponsoring that individual. So the labor itself may not be less expensive, but the, the acquisition cost correct. could be yeah, less correct. expensive. I see. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I just want to plug in uh, sometimes also another uh, misconception or myth is that, oh, you know, if you sponsor for foreign nationals, you know, foreign workers are cheaper than U.S. workers. That's not the case at all. The, the labor itself. Yeah. And that's part of the that's part of the immigration law. Right. That's part of right, that's one of right. the conditions. Right. And Correct. I definitely want to get into that. But so let's say I am a U.S. employer and I've got this shortage uh, and I can't fill this position. Um, what are the what's the process for, you know, we always hear about, you know, immigrants who want to come to the country and work and they people say get in line and there's no line. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the problem. Uh, but what's the what's the process for an employer? And I want to recruit and bring foreign talent into the country. 
where do I start in that process? Um, yeah, so the line, you know, getting the line is, you know, a pretty open concept and usually doesn't work <laughs> as the line is broken as we yeah, all know. Yeah. But uh, as an employer, you usually have two options. Number one is you look at our local universities and see uh, their international student population. Uh, perhaps uh, reach out to the International Student Center or Career Center and see what they have to offer in terms of, um, you know, students from um, outside the United States. Uh, so that's, you know, a lot of employers do their recruitment here locally in the United States, um, hiring international students. Well, and that makes perfect sense, right? We're spending all this money and effort to educate people from other countries, and then we just send that talent back across the country. I hadn't even thought about recruiting, you know, it's obvious, but, you know, recruiting foreign nationals out of, out of uh, U.S.-based schools. That's, that's, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, a lot of employers, when they do their college career uh, fairs, you know, they always say, you know, we don't sponsor. Um, and sometimes they don't really realize um, how many, you know, how many talented individuals they're leaving out. Um, but each school, at least that, that has been my experience, that each university will be more than happy to talk to any employer in terms of introducing that employer to their uh, international student population. So that's, uh, th that's easy. Um, it's, it, it's free. You know, rarely you have to, as an employer, have to pay to, you know, uh, go on campus and actually, you know, showcase your company to all these individuals. Sure. Okay. Uh, and so... Where else would I go look for that labor? Yeah, so that was number option number one. Option number two is uh, actually people, uh, foreign nationals that are already in the United States working for another employer. So uh, that's the so-called H-1B transfer, um, where you can, if your company is offering sponsorship, um, you can attract talent that actually works for other companies, but depending on what you offer, they might want to come and join you. So that's option number two. So you're still within the United States. You, you as an employer haven't even looked outside the United States. So you can still, so you can poach another employer's H-1B visa employees. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, you know, it might not be nice. Which is an ugly them. word, but yeah, it's, yeah, but you can, but yeah, you can recruit you know, them. Yeah. Yeah, everybody does it. So it's sure. uh, ultimately, you know, it's a free market, right? So, right. So that's option number two. And option number three, if you want to look outside the United States, sometimes companies um, hire, uh, let's say your focus is, you know, India or China or, you know, the Philippines or, you know, any country. Um, you know, they, they hire local consultants, I would say, that will do the recruitment for them. Uh, you give them the requirements, what you need, uh, what kind of employees you're looking for, the skill set, um, and they will start sourcing employees for you. So it's a little bit, you know, a little bit more work than if you do it locally, you know, in the colleges or poaching employees from mm -hmm. other companies. Um, but that's also an option. And, you know, we have seen company companies actually do that. It just depends on what you're looking for, the experience level and the skill set. And in the U.S., if I hire a, a, a recruiter or a recruiting firm to go find talent for me, I'm going to pay 20 to 35% of the annual salary to that recruiter. 
is that about what you're, you know, in India, China, Pakistan, any of the places where there's a lot of, uh, of talent available? Is that about what you pay? Is it about that percentage or is it lo lower than that? It is lower. It is lower than that. Uh, it just depends on, you know, how how you negotiate with them, but definitely way cheaper than, um, you know, doing it here. So if we find talent here, is my does my next my fine talent someplace is my next step dependent on whether that person's currently on a student visa or a current H-1B or they're just a foreign national uh, looking for, you know, that we're looking to bring in. Is is that what drives the next step or, or they, is it pretty much the same? Okay. So if it's a student, what does that look like? So if they're a student, most likely they're uh, graduating uh, either with their bachelor's or master's degree, um, and they are looking for sponsorship, uh, meaning H1B sponsorship for the you know um, for the time being. And uh, you're looking as a company, um, you have to register the employee uh, with the H1B registration, which usually opens around March first. So USCIS will send out an announcement with the date and the time. For example, last year, I'll go with the, you know, with the date of last year because we don't have it for this year yet. So last year opened on March 1st through March 20th, I believe. And during that time, employers who are interested in sponsoring foreign national register their foreign nationals into the USCIS website. So you have a good 20 days uh, to, to do that. Uh, once the registration closes, um, which you, last year was uh, March 20th at 12 p.m. Eastern, uh, USCIS will uh, run the lottery, the so-called H-1B lottery. And then within probably two to five days, um, they will start sending the results. Um, if you if your employee won the lottery, so to speak, or their registration was picked in the lottery, um, you or the attorney will receive a notification that that person actually was, you know, his application or registration was picked in the lottery. If that's the case, then you can file uh, their case uh, starting April 1st and you have until June 30th. So you have three months to actually put in that application with, uh, with USCIS. Um, and depending on how you do it, whether you know you want uh, premium processing or regular processing, regular processing usually takes about a couple months, two to three months. Um, and for an extra fee uh, called premium processing, they'll make a decision in two weeks. Oh, so wow. it just, yeah, it just depends on, you know, the circumstances and whether it's worth, you know, going with the premium processing. Sometimes it's not. So uh, I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit to uh, our, our listeners. We're recording this in January and uh, to drop the episode on March 9th. So probably March 9th, when, when our listeners first hear this, we're in that that period, very likely, uh, where they can register to mm -hmm. get their candidate in the in the in the draft so to speak or in the lottery <laughs> um so is it something that they can do that quickly like in the current lottery somebody if i decided today i want to you know run over to uh smu or ut arlington and uh you know here in, in our area or at tcu next door to me uh and recruit somebody i could still get them in or do i have to plan this months in advance 
Um, you can get them in. It's not recommended to wait until the last minute, although I've done it literally the day of ah. <laughs> closing. Um, but it's not, yeah, it, it's common actually for, for employers to, to do it last minute, uh, for various reasons. Either they were not sure, they've never heard for the H1B before, um, or they're juggling different candidates and suddenly, you know, so some other candidate shows up and they're like, oh, can we do you know can you you know can you register this one like last minute mm -hmm. so it is doable you just have to be organized uh to get you know to get the necessary information um so so yeah it's not a problem not recommended but it's doable <laughs> what kind of information do you have to have to just get in a lottery how how complex is that paperwork uh, so the lottery is actually not that complex. Uh, we need, I mean, as a, you know, if you're using an attorney, the attorney needs the company information, obviously, you know, name, address, FEIN number. Uh, and also for the employee, we, you know, obviously need their details, uh, first and last name, uh, country of origin, um, whether they have bachelor's or master's degree, what type of degree they have, um, and their passport information, passport number, and so forth. So the information is not a lot it's just that um usually the issue for the most part is uh getting it into the system because you know imagine millions of people are registering <laughs> and right. sometimes you know the website will crash so we have to redo it you know multiple times um uh, so sometimes... a government website that doesn't work i've never heard of that <laughs> yeah me neither me neither <laughs> so that's why i usually when it opens let's say it opens march 1st i don't register anybody on march first i usually wait a couple days for them to fix the bugs or whatever else whatever you know whatever you know else they have wrong with the website and then then i start registering interesting so and that works for students and foreign nationals is there a different process for uh people that are here on a current currently on an h1b visa to do the transfer is that the same process same lottery process or how does that work if if someone's already here and i just want to recruit them away from wherever they're at so it's not the same process if if they're here and already have h1b they're not subject to the lottery so we are not concerned with the lottery at all um so basically uh, if you want to transfer somebody from company a to your company um you just have to file an h1b with uscis that right there it seems to countermand the uh, argument that uh h1b's undercut prevailing wage rates, right? Because if that were the case, then everybody, you know, would be stealing all each other's H1B visas all the time. And I don't know how much that happens, but it's not, you know, if it, if it is happening, that will drive the, the labor rate up anyway, and they'll be as competitive as the rest of the labor market are more expensive. So, you know, take that, you anti-immigration, anti-visa people, because I mean, it just it <laughs> proves right there, right? That that's not the case. So, yeah. So let's say our candidate gets uh, gets their golden ticket. Okay, they they you know, they got drawn in the lottery. So that's a that's the the first step. What happens next? So next, once we have uh, the confirmation that uh, the uh, the candidate was picked in the lottery, uh, then we prepare the H one B filing, uh, and that's a little bit more documentation than the registration. Um, so, but we have three months to do that. As I said, you can you do that between April first and June thirtieth. Um, in other words, uh, USCIS needs to receive your filing before June thirtieth. 
um, after that, you know, it's, uh, they're not, you know, you're not allowed to file. Um, so you have three months to prepare. Um, obviously, at that point, the employee needs to provide a lot of, you know, basically all of their degrees, transcripts, experience letters, if they have any. Uh, you know, we make sure that they're admissible, that they don't have any prior immigration violations. Um, sometimes, you know, there are, you know, issues of, oh, did you maintain your status? You know, did you violate your status? So that has to be ironed out before you file, because if you have these issues and it looks like that, you know, they might get denied, then there's no point of, you know, moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and also on the employer side, um, if you've never filed an H-1B before, we start with verifying your EIN number with the Department of Labor. Uh, that's required uh, for H-1B, um, any employer that has never filed before. And then uh, obviously the company, you know, the company's information, financials, and so forth. So um, if you're an established company, obviously, you know, we don't need that much information in terms of, I mean, you know, you have a website, obviously, you know, if you're Microsoft, I don't need to write five paragraphs (laughs) who Microsoft is. Um, On the flip side, if you're a startup, you know, then we might have to provide, you know, extra documentation, like a business plan, you know, basically show how are you financing your operation and how you're going to pay that foreign national, the required prevailing Mm. wage. So it just depends the the type of company, the size of company. Uh, But, you know, H-1B, sometimes I get a question, well, I'm a startup, you know, can I do an H-1B? Yes, you can. Um, You know, if you have the right ingredients, you can. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on research credits. Then select episode 86 and enter the keyword USTUN. That's U-S-T-U-N. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. I have 12 hours of recorded webinars, each approved for an hour of recertification credit by both HRCI and SHRM. Three are even approved for HRCI business credit and two qualify for ethics credit. You can access all of these webinars for free at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Dobrina Ustin. You mentioned prevailing wages. What are the rules around prevailing wages and whose responsibility is it to demonstrate what those are? So the way the so the prevailing wages they're de- determined by the Department of Labor and they're based on um, MSA Metropolitan Statistical Areas, which is around fifty miles. Um, so the prevailing wage in Dallas is for a software developer would be different than you know the the same uh, job title, job duties, software developer in San Francisco. Um, so, for example, uh, in Dallas, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, level, so there are four levels. Uh, I always advise clients that we need to do at least level two uh, for various reasons. Um, but you, level two for Dallas, I believe, is around $75,000. That's for entry level, um, 72 or 78. 
Um, obviously, that number is much higher in California, in New York, um, you know, Chicago, depending on where that employee will, um, you know, uh, will perform the work. Um, as I said, Department of Labor determines the prevailing wage and they change them every year, July 1st, based on their formulas and the market and whatnot. So the employer simply designates whatever the job is, looks it up in the in the DOL mm -hmm. uh guidance and says okay this is the one this is where i'm at and, and yeah does that mean that that h1b visa employee has to stay in that market uh or can if you know if i'm a multi-state employer can i move them you know i brought them in in dallas but i need to move them to san francisco or whatever can i do that or do i have to get any special authorization for that yeah, you can you can move them, um, but you have to file an amendment with immigration services. And amendment is basically a new filing. Um, so everything that we did for the original filing, we have to do it for the for the amendment. You know, get the new prevailing wage, uh, and you know the job description, and then uh, all the you know the required documents, and send it again to USCIS. So that that prevailing wage does it. Uh, it changes according to what the market is, Correct. and and you'd have to alter what you're paying that that individual uh, according to whatever market you're moving them to. Yeah, correct. So okay. the employer gives me uh, gives the attorney the job title and the job requirements, the job description, and then I go to the Department of Labor uh, website dedicated to the prevailing wages and match it with the appropriate job code. Mm. Um, and based on that, we see how much that employer is required to pay the, the, the employee. Obviously, for more experienced employees, let's say you have somebody with five years of experience or 10 years of experience, um, they're in a managerial position. Um, obviously, that prevailing wage will be higher at that point. Now, so does that prevailing wage, is it tied to that person, that individual applicant's experience or what the job description requires? So I, could I overhire? My job is just, a, you know, two years of experience, but I've got a candidate who's got 10 years experience. Which which one of those prevailing wages would I would I pay attention to, the 10 year or the two year? So usually, I'm getting in the weeds here, but I'm just really curious now. So. Right, right. So usually we look at the, the employee's experience and, um, and the reason is, you know, if you, you know, if your job description is for, you know, two year or three years of experience and you're getting somebody with, you know, 10 years of experience, uh, immigration services might not be too happy about it, uh, with a lower salary. And, um, so, you know, th sometimes that's where we have the issue of underpaying people people, you know, some employers, um, you know, will hire people with a lot of experience, but pay them less. Um, mm -hmm. And then that's why, you know, we have some people thinking that is, oh, it's much cheaper to, you know, hire a uh, foreign national than a US citizen, which is not, it's just that, you know, we have a few bad apples here and there that sure. are <laughs> trying to game the system. But ultimately, um, yeah, uh, the government will come after you. It might not be, you know, the first year, it might not be the second year, you know, they're kind of slow with these things. Um, but ultimately, they'll knock on the door and do an audit and kind of try to determine whether you're playing with, you know, the experience and the wages. So that one last question about prevailing wage is that 
do you when it, is it the prevailing wage for this level of job in this market is X is the wage that you pay the the, the visa employee X plus five percent or ten percent or does it just have to be level with uh, with the, the market for that job, so it you have it has to be you have to pay minimum what the prevailing wage is. You can okay. always pay more than that. Sure. I mean, you know that's very common as well. Sometimes you know uh, I'll give the employer the prevailing wage, and they'll be like, "Oh no, you know that actually the the salary is you know 150 at this point." Okay. So they can make more. Um, it's just that they cannot go below the the prevailing wage from the Department of Labor. And you don't want to lowball that because you're going through all the effort of bringing someone in and just have yeah. your competitor do the easy part and, and give them a 10% bump and, and trans have mm -hmm. them transfer. Okay. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. So on that application, what else besides prevailing wage, what other, what other kind of information, company information, information about the candidate, uh, mm -hmm. what else is, what else is involved in, in completing that application document? Um, so the other, uh, one of the most important actually aspects is the, we have to make sure that the position, the job description, um, the job requirements re uh, require somebody with a bachelor degree. Um, and that bachelor degree is actually um, relevant or related to the position. In other words, if you're uh, hiring, um, if the position is for software developer uh, and you know you need two years of experience and the candidate has bachelor's in English, uh, we have a problem. Uh, nothing against English majors. Um, it's just that that's not gonna work necessarily for, for the H1B. Um, so, and so that's, that's one issue. The second issue is sometimes positions, um, according to the Department of Labor, they do not require bachelor degree. So if the Department of Labor, um, in their guidelines says that that particular position does not require bachelor degree and we are trying to file for H1B, we'll get dinged there. For example, if I want to hire a paralegal, H1, if I want to do an H1B for a paralegal, um, it's, it's pretty hard to do it because according to the Department of Labor, uh, to be a paralegal, you don't need bachelor's degree. Now, you know, we might agree or disagree, it doesn't matter. Um, but, you know, when I file that application, obviously the question would be um, from the immigration services, you know, why, why do you require bachelor degree for this person when the Department of Labor says that it's not required? So we have to make sure that the position actually, you know, requires bachelor degree. Well, as more and more employers, especially in a technical area, are moving away from requiring degrees and are more interested in certifications and competencies, uh, which I think is wise. And I've been telling employers to do for 20, you know, five, 30 years. But um, is, is there any budge there? I mean, if I'm hiring a code, somebody to come do coding, all I care about as the employer is, can they code? I don't care that they, you know, that they had physical education and studied the classics and did all the things that come with getting a bachelor's. I just need to know that they can put the ones and zeros in together in the right order. Right. Is, yeah. is, is, is immigration looking at any of that? Uh, is there a way around that? Uh, potentially they, they might, you know, that, that was actually some concern within the immigration community, immigration attorneys. But if you, um, if you look at these employers and their requirements that, oh, we don't need a bachelor degree, you can just apply. Um, 
they don't need bachelor degree, but they need experience. <laughs> mm -hmm. So right. these are not for your entry level, so to speak, you know, like 22 sure. year olds um, that have no bachelor degree and no experience. I mean, I would doubt that, you know, Apple will actually hire somebody, um, you know, highly, you know, for a highly technical position who just graduate and has zero, zero years of experience. Right. Right, right. If they have experience, so the equivalence is 12 years of experience uh, is equivalent to a four-year U.S. bachelor degree. So, you know, let's say I didn't go, I didn't do my bachelor. Uh, I went straight into coding. I spent, you know, 12 years doing it. I advanced and then I apply for Google. Yeah, they probably won't care about my bachelor degree, but I have 12 years of um, yeah, relevant experience and I can still Which do is a HR. ridiculous equivalency. I'm sorry, but that's 12 <laughs> years. I mean, that's, I'd much rather have somebody with 12 years of, or six years of actual yeah. coding experience, you know, 40 or 50 hours a week over somebody yeah. with a bachelor, but okay. It's, it's, we're it's, not here it's to, little, not here to know, talk about make it up, so. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, okay, good. Um, so anything else about the application that we should know that's, that's unique? Uh, I mean, pretty much, pretty much that's it. You know, once you file with immigration services, then, uh, hopefully within, you know, a couple of months, three months, we'll get a favorable decision and that employee, their first day of H1B is October 1st. Um, that's when the, gov the government fiscal year begins, and that's when all new H-1B uh, begins. So. And so on October 1st in New York and all the international airports, is that, that's when all these, these, these new employees start coming in? Yeah, if you're outside the United States, that's when usually people arrive. Uh, I mean, you know, some might come a little later, depending on, you know, when their work will start or project, if it's, you know, project based. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's the, that's the official date for, um, you know, the H1B. And so, and how long is that H1B visa good for? Uh, so total is six years, uh, but they give it to you first for three, and then you do another extension for three. Okay. And what if at the end of six years, this employee is critical to my organization? What do we do then? So hopefully you realize before that, at least, you know, two, three years before the six year expires and you initiate a green card permanent residency application for them. Because in order for them to stay past the sixth year, um, they have to be in the green card process. And can you get that green card done in two or three years, typically uh, coming from a, a, a employment related visa? Yes, for some individuals. So if you're if you're from India and China, you cannot. Hmm. Um, if you're you know if you're not from India and China, it is possible. Well, now it's about three years with all the backlogs. Hmm. Interesting. Why India and China? Is there a, a special policy exclusions because of something? Or? So it's kind of a little technical, but so basically they, uh, each year Department of State gives 140,000 green cards, new green cards. Um, we have about millions of people from India who are applying. So, mm. and, uh, each, um, so India gets 7% of that 140. Ah. Uh, Mexico gets seven percent, and then the Philippines and uh, rest of the world. So the rest of the world is kind of jumbled up together. So each of the, you know, each of those brackets gets seven percent of that one forty. Uh. 
if you have millions of people applying, obviously you create the backlog. So right now, if you're from India, um, people that apply um, 2011, 2012 are actually eligible to apply for their green card. Hmm. So we are about 10 years behind. Wow. Okay. A little bit more than 10, actually. So And so... Let's say we, we found this candidate and we're going to who we found somebody who work who's already got a visa and they're working for our competitor. And uh, what does that process look like to, to do the transfer? Um, very, very similar to a new new H1, um, except that they're not subject to the to the lottery. So uh, we, we need the same information from them, you know, their, um, you know, uh, education, their experience, resume, uh, transcripts, um, and the same information from the company. And then um, we file with immigration services. Now, if you're poaching somebody who is already on H1B, uh, most likely their question would be, are you going to start my green card process? So, <laughs> mm -hmm. because, you know, they want to get into, especially if they're from India or China, given the, you know, given the backlogs. Um, so that's one sort of, I mean, it's a retention tool for a lot of candidates. Um, and some companies, some employers are looking into it, basically offering, um, you know, that we immediately going to start your green card process. Once you transfer to our company, you know, the next day we're going to initiate the green card process. It used to be in the past, the employer will say, well, still we have some employers saying that, oh, you have to work for us for like two years or three years before we can consider they're sponsoring your permanent residency. Um, but in the last few years, uh, you know, since everybody was, you know, trying to hire tech talent, um, you know, a lot of companies started saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to do it right away. Like Microsoft is one of the companies that actually, you know, they start the green card process immediately. Mm. Oh, and that's probably how you get the, the best and brightest. To, yeah. Because uh, yeah. yeah. this mm -hmm. is the place still that everybody in the world, you know, so where do you see employers screw this process up? What are the biggest, you know, biggest things that they don't anticipate or they just do wrong? Um, they don't I hire Dobrina. That's the first one. But well, well, after that, yeah, number <laughs> yeah, one, <yeah>. of course. <laughs> Um, no, I think a lot of it is a lot of employers are afraid of the process when they hear all the DOL, the immigration, you know, they think that this is this huge thing that, you know, they have to undertake. Um, and that apprehension sometimes, um, you know, it's not their friend, basically. Um, so that's, you know, that's one. Two is sometimes the employers, depending on, you know, the, the employer, you know, they don't follow exactly the, the steps or, you know, there are some compliance components that are, um, you know, associated with processing immigration paperwork. Um, so sometimes, you know, they kind of ignore that part because it's mostly in-house sort of, you know, paperwork. And then they'll be like, oh, you know, nobody cares. Well, you know, actually we do. Uh, and the DOL does. Um, so I think that's kind of the, I mean, at least those are the two uh, brackets that I have seen in terms of, you know, employers. But yeah, most of it, a lot of it is like hesitation. A lot of it is like, oh, it's going to cost me like, you know, $100,000 to sponsor somebody. Uh, which I mean, that's not the case. Um, so I think if employers are more educated in this area, um, I think they will be more open to exploring the option of sponsoring foreign nationals. And 
this sounds like just filling out government paperwork, but is this a process that an employer should do without their legal counsel or, uh, and I'm asking a lawyer, it's what I expect the answer to be, but the reality is, is, is this, you know, is this something the employer can do themselves, uh, or do they really need the expertise of somebody who's really, uh, understands the nuance of the program? Um, if they, you know, if they want to spend a lot of time doing this, um, they can, but I'm pretty sure they're going to screw up somewhere along <laughs> the process. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so they do, I mean, you know, obviously we do advise to consult with legal counsel or at least have somebody on staff, a very experienced HR person who has done immigration before that can, can actually guide you through that process. So what is the total cost? And you mentioned it's not $100,000. So um, what are the, you know, let's separate the filing fees and what I might pay counsel for. What are, like, for the employer to pay to the government to sponsor an H-1B visa, what does that look like? So right now, uh, it's about $3,000, depending on the size of the company. So they have different levels. Uh so let's say it's, you know, two, $2,500, $3,000. Um, and then, you know, then you want to pay the, the legal counsel, depending on obviously the legal counsel, you know, for H1B. Um, I mean, it's anywhere between 1500 to I've seen 5000 for H1Bs. So, <laughs> so, but if you, that's like, so you're talking a total price tag of $8,000. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah that's cheap compared to the cost of using an external recruiter to hire a hundred, $125,000 position, or even a $75,000 position. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, that's a deal compared to the cost of, of high, using recruiters to, yeah. to source somebody and then relocate somebody to your market from, you know, we're in Texas and we're relocating somebody mm -hmm. from Chicago or that's just, you know, that would be uh yeah you know, have a lot more expense to it. Yeah, sometimes, you know, employers say, well, you know, if, if I spend this 8,000 or 10,000 for, for this employee, what if, you know, they come to my company and then they transfer out their H1, you know, to, you know, company B. Um, but I mean, you have the same risk as, you know, hiring sure. anybody that, you know, they'll just leave the second week. Um, so right. it's, you can't really, you know, tie people to your company. Right. Yeah. Uh, we got rid of indentured servitude a, few, a couple centuries right. ago. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, that's all the time we have, but I, I sure appreciate you being with me, Debrina. That's so helpful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can find him at robmakespods.com. And thank you to Imperatives Marketing Coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey, as always. Don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.